We are continuing in our series in Hebrews this morning. As I get myself settled, I'm going to take my watch off. Um, You guys may not know this, but I keep a little clock up here in the top right-hand corner. And last week, I looked at it, and I thought, oh, good, it's only 5 after 11. And then I looked at it again later, and I thought, oh, good, it's still 5 after 11. (laughs) So I know know we were a little long last week. I'm blaming it on the the dead watch battery. So... um, Praise God. Book of Hebrews, we jumped in last week. We did a lot of background work. We saw that the author of Hebrews is writing uh, most likely to a group of Jewish Christians, Christians that are facing persecution and they're facing temptation and their faith is being threatened. Many of them are considering returning to Judaism. Judaism offered a stability, a history, and a comfort in the land at the time. And so the author is writing to them, warning them not to turn away reminding them that Jesus is worthy of our devotion. And so the author of Hebrews is going to go to great lengths again and again and again to show us that Jesus is better. We saw last week better than the angels. He's superior, superior to Abraham and Moses, more excellent than the law and the old covenant, greater than all the priests and the sacrifices, more glorious than Jerusalem and the promised land. Jesus is greater. He's greater than anything that could pull those first century Hebrew Christians away and and greater than anything that could distract or pull us away from him. Amen? And so again and again, we hear in the book of Hebrews this call to hold on, hold on to Christ, draw near to him. And we saw this theme verse in Hebrews chapter 4. Chris, I'm going to read it in the ESV, not in the the Chris Rep uh, translation that you use, but that was beautiful if you were here at the beginning of the service. But the word of God says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's draw near, draw near to this superior Savior, Jesus. Over and over, Hebrews gives us this grand picture of Jesus seated in glory, seated in victory. His work is done His salvation has been accomplished, and so what does the Savior do? He sits down, right? The king sits down. The battle has been won. Victory has been achieved. He has overcome. The work is accomplished. And so we see Jesus in Hebrews seated on the throne, seated on this great throne of glory, this great throne of grace, and it's not something to be intimidated by or to be off-put by. You know, right now, I think it's still going on in, in London, like literally 14 hours, they said it could be as many as 24-hour wait to get in line, to, to, to line up along the river, to make your way into Westminster Abbey just for a second or two next to the coffin of Queen Elizabeth, right? And, and, I, and, and she was a godly woman who apparently loved Jesus, and, and there's, there's honor and there's, there's goodness in, in what they're doing. But do you see that yearning that you just maybe get a glimpse of, of the queen before they put her in the ground. And we have this open invitation anytime, day or night, to draw near to the throne, to draw near to your Savior Jesus who gave his life for you. And yes, he's seated on a great throne, but it's a throne of grace where you will find mercy and help in time of need. This morning we're going to move on to chapter 2 and continue hearing about this great salvation. That's kind of the big picture theme this morning is the great salvation that we have in Christ. And we're going to look at, at two passages, two sections this morning, verses uh, 1 to 4 and verses 5 to 9. It's page 1001. If, 
if you need a Bible, there's hardback blue Bibles in the back. We're on page 1001. And the first little section we're going to read is a warning. It's a warning not to drift away from the great salvation we have in Christ. And the second section is a call, a call to look to Jesus, the founder of this great salvation. So I'm going to pray again and ask for the Lord's help. <clears throat> and then we will read. I think I'm just going to read the first section to begin with, verses 1 to 4. Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for these people that not only do we believe in a Savior, but we come to faith in a family. And so, God, I pray that even as we sit together, as we read and unpack the Word, that we would encourage and stir one another, build one another up in faith. And I pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit, that the, the written Word would be living and active, that it would pierce our hearts that the word of God would come alive to us and stir us to faith, that those who are wavering would find stable foundation in Christ, those who are looking to other things, that our eyes and our hearts would be focused on Christ, be present among us in the reading and unpacking of your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 2.1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So we'll stop there. And chapter opens with a therefore. Good Bible student is always going to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? It's a transition. And the author is saying, look, since, as we saw in chapter 1, since Jesus is superior to the angels, that means we must pay even closer attention to the gospel message that we have heard. The author there says we, which I love. He's saying we. We need to be attentive. We need to be attentive to the message. What is the message that we have heard? We summarize that as the gospel, the good news. We can think about the gospel in, in God, man, Christ, and response. The gospel begins with God, a creator, a king who is in heaven, who is reigning over all, who created the world for his glory, created us to be in relationship with him as a loving father with a good plan and a purpose for our lives. But of course, the second aspect of the gospel is humanity, is men and women that were created in his image, and yet we have turned from him. We have not stayed connected to our creator. We have turned from him in selfishness and in sin and walked away in disobedience. And because our father is a good creator and a good king and a just God who wants righteousness and goodness and love to reign in his universe, he says that, that, that the punishment and the penalty for disobedience and for sin is death. Physical death, yes, but eternal death in a separation from God. But the third thing we need to keep in mind when we summarize the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is, is Christ. Yes, we have a creator. Yes, we've fallen away, but God has sent us a redeemer in Jesus. Jesus, who was fully God, born as a man, lived the perfect life that you or I could not live, always walking in obedience to God and love for God and others. Jesus, who, who laid down his life willingly, laid down his life, dying in our place. The reason that, that Jesus died on a cross is because it was the substitute for, for our lives. He laid down his life in our place. And not only did he die for our sins, die that we could be cut off from our old lives, but he rose from the dead in victory, rose from the dead 
filling us with the Holy Spirit, enabling us to walk into eternal life, both now and in the life to come. But the, the fourth point we need to remember in the gospel, God, man, Christ, is response. See, there's a response that you and I are called to, to ha- have faith, to trust, and to walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus. The invitation goes out, the call goes out to come to Christ, to trust in the Savior, to admit that you cannot do it on your own, that you're broken, to believe that Jesus is the Savior, and then to commit to follow him. Brothers and sisters, if you've made that commitment, if you have given yourself to Christ as Savior, I just hope that you're encouraged and reminded of what it is to walk with Jesus, not just a one-time decision, but every day that your life is centered on this good news. And if you're here this morning and you're maybe wrestling in your life, wrestling with what it means to have peace, wrestling with what it means to be connected to God, wrestling with who Jesus is, I, I call to your mind this good news that there is a Savior, and I call you to respond in faith, to say, today I'll choose Jesus. And maybe your questions are not all answered. Maybe you don't have it figured out, because I still don't. But yet we, we cling to the only hope that we have, and you say, God, I need your forgiveness. I need your new life. Holy Spirit, come in and fill me. I give myself to you. And this is the good news that the author of Hebrews says in verse 1 of chapter 2, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away to it. This, this good news must be the center of our lives. We can't slip away. We can't turn to other things. Like a boat slipping away from the pier because it's not well tied, we need to tie ourselves firmly to our Savior Jesus and to the good news of new life in Him that, that is not just our ticket to heaven, friends. Even now, it restores and, and, and reorients our lives, our marriages, our, our personal daily hope, every aspect of who we are. And so verse 2 says, since the message spoken through angels proved to be reliable, how much more reliable is this message? Now the message referring there, the message spoken through angels, if you were with us last week, you know, is, is the law of Moses. Scripture indicates, and it was common in the first century to refer to the, the law of the old covenant as coming to Moses mediated through angels. And the law of God was not just religious practices in the Old Covenant. It wasn't just about temple worship. The law was fully comprehensive. It gave guidance and regulations and and guidelines for personal life, for health, for family dynamics in the home. It gave rules and regulations for work and for rest and for agriculture and for trade and for government and for social justice and criminal justice and international affairs. This beautiful 613 laws and regulations for the people of God in Israel and said, this is how you live in covenant with me. And we know that that the law of the old covenant was binding for the people of Israel. That means it was unalterable. It was firm. It was secure. And the reason we know that is because God not only set in the law, but he said every violation or every disobedience against these laws deserves a just punishment from the Lord. And chapter, verse 2 calls that to our mind. That just as God set up expectations for life in Israel, he also set up punishments and penalty for not walking in his will, either a penalty in this life or in the life to come. And so verse 3 goes on to say, look, if this lesser message that came to angels in the old covenant, orchestrating life in Israel, if this lesser message delivered by angels was reliable, if it was upheld by the justice of God, how much more will our greater message delivered through the superior son, how much more will it also not be upheld? 
Do you see that? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If God cared about this and it was firm and reliable, if it achieved its purpose, how much more the gospel of Jesus Christ? This message the author of Hebrews wants us to know is confirmed, it's certain. Friends, you can trust the gospel. You can trust the message that there's life in Jesus. You can trust the message of the New Testament. And the author is going to give us four ways, lay out four ways that this message has been certified for us. Look at verse 3. First of all, he says that this great salvation was first declared to the world through the Lord Jesus, right? Jesus was the very first one to declare the good news of the kingdom, and he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom in his earthly ministry, and he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He didn't just proclaim it, but he lived it. He lived as Savior. He lived as God in the flesh. And so we know first and foremost, it it is a reliable, confirmed message because it came from Jesus. Secondly, in verse 3, it says that this message was attested. It was verified to us by the disciples who were with Jesus. They saw him die and they saw him rise from the dead. And the author of Hebrews says, we heard it from these apostles, from these first disciples firsthand. He's speaking there most likely to second generation Christians who heard it from the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Now, we don't have any eyewitnesses this morning of the resurrected Lord, but you know what we do have? We do have their testimony. See, the attested gospel witness has come to us through the written word. These scriptures that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that were either written by eyewitnesses, by those apostles, or written by those who were with the apostles. The testimony of the apostles in the New Testament of the gospel message is confirmed. He gives us a third reason in verse 4. He says, God has also confirmed this gospel message and the testimony of Scripture with signs and wonders and miracles. The miraculous work of God confirmed for us that the gospel, that the good news of new life in Jesus is in fact valid. See, even now the validity of the gospel, the validity of the work of Christ, the veracity of the Scriptures even now is confirmed by God's miraculous work in our lives through the Spirit, both through His intimate personal work in your heart, but also through The miracles that are still at work today, the acts of healing that are still at work today, confirming the gospel. And then fourthly, he says also in verse 4, that the gifts of the Spirit confirm this message. Isn't that a beautiful reality that here in the church, as the people of God, as, as the Holy Spirit distributes gifts to each of us, the gifts of the Spirit at work among us confirm the truth of the gospel. As the Spirit is active in the church through spiritual gifts of teaching and mercy and faith and prophecy and healing, as we serve, as we minister to one another in our gifts, we bear witness to one another of the power of the gospel. Hey, wait a minute. This is actually true. This is not just some words written on a dusty book. We see it at work in our lives. And so the author wants us to know that this message is confirmed It's been spoken directly from the Son of God. It's been attested by the apostles. It's been validated by God's miraculous work, and it's been confirmed through the gifts of the Holy Spirit at work in His people. And yet, despite the message of this great salvation, despite how how it's been confirmed to us, some still reject it. Some still turn from it. See, the Christian gospel is the call to return to God. Return to God. Return into right relationship with your creator, with your father. But those who reject this offer, who continue in their state of rebellion, in brokenness with God, they ultimately will face judgment. Look what it says in verse 3. 
How will we escape the just penalty of God against sin if we neglect this great salvation that's been revealed to us? If we forget it, if we drift away from it, if we turn away from it, if we don't stay committed to the good news of of Jesus our Savior, how will we not escape the just penalty of God, it says? And this here in the book of Hebrews is the first of of, of four very clear and and at times very challenging warning passages, what we call the warning passages of Hebrews. And we are being warned we must stay close to this gospel message. We must pay attention so that we don't drift away, right? Friends, the Christian life is not just about, oh yeah, that one day way back when I went to Bible camp and 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 I was born again and I made a decision. The Christian life is life in the gospel every day, every day in God's love and mercy, every day in the reality that Jesus died to cut you off from sin and death, that Jesus rose from the dead to fill you with his Holy Spirit, with new life. It's paying attention to that on a daily basis in your own heart, preaching the gospel to yourself before you share it with your children, before you pray for opportunities to share it with your friends and coworkers and neighbors. We ourselves feed every day on this good news, but we got to pay attention to it because if we don't, what's going to happen? We're going to drift. We're going to drift away from this good news. I grew up, I lived in Cockeysville, but we had this a little shore house, a, a half of a duplex down outside of Glen Burnie on Bodkin Creek. Bodkin Creek is, is a little creek at the mouth of a, the Patapsico River. If you want more details, see Ron Woolline because he drove past my old house recently and in his boat and took a picture of it. So, um, but, but growing up on Bodkin Creek, there was always a current. Either the tide was coming in or the tide was going out. There was always a current off of our dock. And so you learned pretty quickly that if a hat blew off or a towel fell in the water off the pier, you had a, a few seconds to grab it before you were going to be taking a swim. It was going to be either drifting upriver or downriver. When you were in the water as a kid playing and you had an inner tube or a raft, you knew that you had to hang on to that thing. Right? It's not like being in a pool. And I remember when friends would come down and we'd have neighbors from back home or we'd bring friends down for the weekend and their only you know, understanding is, is swimming in a pool. And so we'd be out swimming and they'd have an inner tube or a raft and they would stop what they're doing and, and turn to do something else or jump off the pier thinking, I guess, that they were in a pool, forgetting about their raft. And next thing I knew, we'd look up and the thing would be 50 yards down river. Right? Okay, well, my brother or I got to put on a life jacket and go get this thing now, right? Because it's going to drift. That's just what happens. I learned at a very early age, when the boat comes back in, it has to be tied off. My father taught me how to tie a proper line on a cleat tightly so that it's not going to slip, it's not going to drift. And so lines had to be checked, boats had to be, had to be tied around the pilings, around the cleats, and you had to know what you're doing, otherwise that boat was going to drift away. I actually remember one night, particularly, there was a particular particularly bad storm, and, and, and the wind was blowing, the rain was coming down, the waves were high, the tide was high, and we woke up the next morning and looked out the window. Lo and behold, the boat was gone. It had broken from the lines. And so we had to hop in a neighbor's boat and start driving up and down the creeks and the rivers, and we found it down at the end of the, of the river because things drift. Things just drift They unravel, they drift towards chaos and disorder because our hearts are not stable. They tend to drift and we face storms that even even the best 
tied lines need to be checked and reinforced. And friends, if, if we are not grounded, if we are not tied in to the Lord Jesus, we will drift. And sometimes it happens slowly, you know, and you think the raft is, is floating right next to you, but you turn away just for a moment and all of a sudden it's out of reach. Sometimes drifting happens bit by bit, inch by inch, without even noticing. And one day you wake up and think, look how far away from the Lord I am. And so we hear this warning of, of verse 1, pay closer attention to what we have heard. Pay closer attention to this gospel. Because as, as some of us know all too well, it doesn't take much to pull our hearts away from Jesus. Just a little shift in the current. A, a little wind that blows in the wrong direction that picks up some momentum. A little loosening of the line that you thought was tied to the pier. And we, we each can drift and this warning is for us. I think there's at least three main, three main ways that we can drift away from the Lord Jesus. The first is persecution, and that's what the Hebrews were facing. See, the original audience of the Hebrews was facing threats. They were facing intense persecution from their community. They were having their property seized. Some of them were being imprisoned. Some of them were giving up on their faith and walking away. And I think this is like the person who's got his boat tied up on the pier, but he hears about a big storm coming, and he sees other neighbors who, whose boats couldn't handle the storm. And then he begins to feel the wind and feel the waves and feel the pressure of the storm. And you know what the person does? He just walks down from the dock, and he says, you know what, I'm out. And he just unties his boat, and he says, I'm done. And he walks away because the persecution is too much. Now, many of us have not faced that level of, of intense persecution, but I think the devil can persecute us, you may say, spiritually, and we may face attacks of the, of the enemy in our heart, or we may face un, seemingly unbearable circumstances. And I've known men and women that have walked away from Jesus, that have simply untied their boat and said, the persecution is too much, I'd rather live on my own. But there's something else that can cause us to drift, and that's temptation. See, I think at times we are lured away by the pleasures of the world, and we give in to sin, to greed, to lust, to a desire for comfort, to a for a desire for success, and those temptations seem better to us than Christ does. And this is like the person who who's, makes sure his line is tied up on the boat, but each day he, he lets out a little more line and a little more line, right? It's like, how far can I go from the pier Keeping my boat secure because I don't want to leave Jesus, but how far can I go? How far can I drift out into the world until one day he realizes there's no more line left? And he's too far away. And temptation has, has swept him away from the Lord Jesus. So for some, it's, it's persecution, whether physical persecution or spiritual persecution. For others, it's the, the temptations of the world that cause them to drift away. But I think the greatest potential for you and I is distraction. I think the greatest potential for us to be swept up and to be swept away from our, our mooring in Jesus is distraction. Because we just get busy. And 21st century Western culture is so busy and so distracted and it causes us to become inattentive. Right? And Hebrews 2.1 says, pay attention, we become inattentive. And we look to other things. And we're not paying attention in our walk with the Lord. And eventually we get apathetic in our commitment to the Lord. And we never make a, an overt decision to leave Jesus or to untie the rope or to walk away. But busyness and distraction eventually lead us into apathy. And so we just stop 
essential disciplines and we stop daily prayer and we stop our, our necessary time in the Word and we stop engaging in church life and this supposed great salvation, we wake up one day and it just feels irrelevant. We may not overtly deny Jesus, but he feels irrelevant. And this is like the person who, who has the boat down on the dock, but he just simply forgets to check that the lines are still tied tightly, forgets to make sure that the cleat is still secure to the dock. And when the line is a little bit frayed, he doesn't repair it or replace it with a new line. When the, loose, when the knot and the, and the line gets a little loose, he doesn't tighten it back up. And at a certain point, he just forgets that the boat is even down there until one time, he, after maybe weeks and weeks or months and months of checking, he walks down onto the dock only to realize the boat is no longer there. He's been so distracted that it's just drifted away. And he didn't even realize it. Friends, pay attention. We, myself, our elder team, our deacon team, we must pay attention to the gospel that we've heard. It is a great salvation, as the author of Hebrews describes. And so the call is, listen, listen to the message that brought you to life. Listen to the message that gave you hope, because it's what will give you hope every day. This word of God, this gospel is reliable. It's been confirmed and God's love is firm, is stable. He has a plan for you. And so hold on. Hold on to your Savior. Don't drift away from Jesus. Draw near. Draw near every waking moment to the throne of grace. Don't drift away. Chapter 6 will go on to say that Christ and his redeeming work are a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I'm actually really excited to preach that passage. He's an anchor of the soul that keeps us firmly grounded. He is the only anchor that will hold you firmly in place. And even if you're not facing persecution or not facing intense temptation or not overcome by distraction, the storms are going to come, right? And no matter how firm you think you are, the storms are going to come. The winds are going to blow. I got an email this week from Jared Bottomley. Some of you remember Jared and Krista Bottomley, and I checked in on them. They moved down to Louisville, I'm not sure, maybe two years ago. And I, I've talked about them before, but I remember the night that we got the phone call that, that, that little Sebastian's cold had all of a sudden, he had woken up and he was paralyzed. And he was rushed to the ER, and then they rushed him up to Hershey Medical Center. And, and the paralysis didn't go away, and, and week after week became month after month. And they had to seek out specialized training and specialized therapy. They had to sell their home, move to Louisville for this super intense. And, and, and I got this email because I, I reached out to Jared to ask how he was doing. He said, we're, we're holding our own. Things are difficult because taking a, a handicapped child five days a week for intense physical therapy is not easy. And schooling and homeschooling and work and new church and new city. And that could have shipwrecked their faith. And many of you may not have known this. And Jared's talked about it. And I don't think that they would mind. But man, their marriage was almost destroyed as a result of this crisis. Brother in the back just leaned on that light switch. You, you guys like it brighter or should, Alan, can we turn that back down maybe? Or, um, where was I? Yeah, their, their faith, of course, was rocked, but their marriage was as well. And they went through an incredibly difficult time, but they remained tied into the anchor. And the Lord preserved them and the Lord held them. And they're standing in Christ. They're holding firm. To, this, to their faith, because you know what? Jesus is holding on to them, amen? See, Hebrews is gonna call us again and again to hold fast, to hold on. 
but it will also remind us that, that God himself is holding on to us. See, Scripture makes abundantly clear that Jesus is holding more tightly on to you than you could ever hold on to him. But that reality shouldn't produce apathy in you. It shouldn't make you apathetic. Oh, well, Jesus is holding on to me. I'm good to go. I can do what I want. No, no. The clear call of Scripture is to hold fast. Look at Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. And so with the assurance of his faithfulness, with the assurance that he is the anchor for your soul, hold on, pay attention, don't drift away. Amen? This section here highlights our great salvation in an effort to keep us from drifting away. But let's look now at verses 5 to 9, because here we see Jesus. We're called here to look to Jesus Christ crowned with glory and honor. Let's see what the Word of God says next in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so verse 5 will say to us, this great salvation that we're talking about, this great salvation will one day culminate in a new world at the end of the age. And the author says in verse 5 that this new world will not be subjected to angels. As we saw last week, these Hebrew Christians are preoccupied with angels. And so again and again, he's going to take time to correct a misunderstanding and affirm, no, no, Jesus is vastly superior to angels. And we heard last week in chapter 1 that Jesus is creator and sustainer and ruler and savior over all. And he is the one who will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. He is the one who will reign over God's new creation in eternity. And so he goes on in verses 6, 7, and 8 to explain again and to defend his point again from the Psalms. And he says there in verse 6, it's been testified somewhere, and we're not actually sure whether the author can't quite remember which Psalm it is or if it's just not important. But if you're wondering, it's Psalm 8. He's quoting almost word for word from Psalm 8. And he says there, talking about the, the low status, relatively low status that humanity has before God. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You created humanity to be even lower than the angels. Yes, made in God's image, but, but here on earth subjected to, to temporal and physical limitations. Man and, and woman were created to be God's representatives, to exercise dominion over the earth. But Hebrews then goes on to explain Psalm 8, which is originally a psalm about humanity, to see its fulfillment and its application in Jesus, the, the true humanity, the true Son of God. And so the author goes on in verse 7, applying this to the true Son of Man who fulfills God's design for humanity, who truly, Jesus, truly exercises dominion over creation. Verse 7 says, For a little while you set him, talking here about the Son, 
on earth lower than the angels. See, Jesus came to earth. He emptied himself. He took on human form. He was made lower than the angels while on earth. But now Jesus has been lifted back up to an exalted position. And so it goes on to say that you crowned him with glory and with honor. You gave him authority to rule over all things. You put all things in subjection under his feet. And as we've seen, that now Jesus is seated on the throne. Now there's this idea that he's so exalted and so high up, seated on his throne of victory and glory and power, that everything is under his feet and and everything is in subjection. He means he has dominion over all things, seated on the throne under his feet. This beautiful picture of our Lord seated on this throne of glory. Seated down, seated down because he's he's had victory and the work is done. And so verse 8 continues, and the author continuing to expound on these themes from verse 8, he says, look, if God the Father has truly given God the Son dominion over all things, that means that there's nothing outside of our Lord Jesus' control. What, what a wonderful reality. Just pause there for a minute. This passage says there's nothing outside of Jesus' control. He's seated on the throne. He's exalted high above everything. Everything is under his feet. That means nothing in your life is outside of God's control. Not angels or rulers. Not your boss. Not your mother-in-law. Not governors or presidents. Not sin or the devil or bad circumstances or accidents. Everything is under God's control. However... Look what verse 8 continues on to say. At present, as things are right now, we do not actually see everything in subjection to Christ. And so I'm wondering, okay, wait a minute. Are things actually under Jesus' dominion or not? Because it says that he has rule over all things, but we don't yet see it. What is going on here? Well, to answer this, we need to unpack a concept called the already not let, not yet. See, we live in this at times quite uncomfortable space between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Put this diagram up. What what we can describe, what has been described as the already not yet. It's life in between the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom at his first coming and the final consummation of his kingdom at his second coming. And so Jesus' work has been accomplished. Sin and death have been defeated on the cross. Victory already has been won. The last days already are here already inaugurated through the victory of the resurrection, Jesus is already truly crowned with glory and honor, as this passage says, but these realities have not yet been fully manifested in our temporal experience, our physical world. Sin has not yet been abolished from the earth. Satan is defeated, but he's not yet destroyed. Redemption is fully accomplished, but it's not yet fully realized in our lives on earth. And so we live in this space between his first and his second coming, and and salvation has been accomplished and achieved, but it's not yet finalized and manifested on earth. And these 2,000 years in this period of the already not yet seem super long to us, but theologically and in the mind of God, the first and second coming are, are, are one play, two acts of one play. And friends, it's coming, and it's certain, and it's as good as done. My wife's birthday was was a week ago, and I ordered a bunch of things online, because I don't think you can actually buy stuff in stores anymore, can you? And of course, the stuff from Amazon got here in time for her birthday, but but I made the mistake of ordering stuff not on Amazon, because apparently you can still do that. But the stuff didn't come. A day late, two days late, three days late, four days late. Her, her last gift finally came on Friday. Now, here's the thing. I had already picked it out. 
I had already bought it. Technically, I had already owned it. It was already being shipped. It was already on its way. It just had not yet arrived. It was not yet in her possession. It was not yet there for her to hold. It already belonged to her, but it was not yet there. You see the idea? And so that's why the author of Hebrews can say, Jesus rules over everything. He has control over everything. But then he says in verse 8, but we do not yet see it. And I love the fact that verse 8 says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I am extremely comforted by the honesty of this verse. I'm glad the Bible doesn't give us the mistaken impression or the false comfort that everything in our world is honky-dory. Because I don't know about you, but I often feel the weight of the world and the struggle of the world, and I often feel the sin of the world in small ways and in big ways. And I got a bathroom sink that leaks, and I got bees that have made a nest under the siding of my house, and I filled it and caulked it once, and now they're back. And I got a tractor that needs to be repaired, and I have bricks in my front sidewalk that are cracking that need to be waterproofed. And I have a sump pump drainage that is creating a swamp in my backyard. And after two and a half years of not getting COVID, two weeks ago, I got COVID finally. I thought I had a superpower, but apparently not. And my body was sick and my body was hurting. And our family deals with the busyness of schedules. And I feel a lack of control over my kids' device usage. And I bicker with my wife about silly things, about what constitutes sausage. And then I have to deal with more... Don't ask. I have to deal with, with more significant problems. My wife had to correct me somewhat recently about my harsh tone and my lack of compassion with my kids. And I deal with my own personal battle of sin and, and days when I feel discontent. And beyond that, there are people in my life right now whom I love and care for that are battling cancer. There are numerous marriages. Yes, even marriages at Living Hope. Marriages that are struggling. Some of them are on the rock. Some of them are experiencing separation. Beyond that, there's political turmoil. There's war ongoing in Ukraine. There's massive upheaval and dysfunction in Haiti. There's famine right now in 2022 ravaging the continent of Africa and on and on and on. You know what I feel like? You know what I feel like? I feel like verse 8. I do not yet at present see the Lord Jesus reigning over all. And I feel that. Do you feel it? And the scriptures are honest and say, yes, it's already won, but it's not yet fully manifested. The Bible does not give us a fake or false positivity. So what do we do? So then what do we do? Do we just give in to despair? Do we look to the world to find comfort? No, we look to Christ reigning on the throne to find our hope. We were out yesterday for six hours at the New Freedom Fest and we had a big slide and we gave stuff away and we had this big board that says, what is your hope in life? And we'll post the pictures on our Facebook page. You can see what people wrote. It was amazing and at times sad where people in our world look to to find hope. And there were all the things that you would expect in the world, like people put their hope in money or fun or a job or success or fame. One kid wrote Fortnite. That's his hope. I don't know. Here's a, a surprising amount of people find hope in life through puppies. Like multiple people wrote puppies up on our board. No idea what that's about. But here is my hope. Here is our hope. Christ is reigning on the throne. Amen. Christ is reigning and in control of all things. And while we may not yet see it in full, everything really is truly right now in subjection to him. Nothing is outside of his control. And so you can rest. We can have peace. We can trust in God's plan and purpose. Because while we don't yet see everything submitted in obedience, you know what we do see? What do we see? What does verse 9 say? 
Verse 9 says, but we do see him, him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We don't yet see him fully reigning, but we do see him. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus came to earth. He lived on earth, was a man. But now after the resurrection from the dead, after his ascension back onto heaven, he's seated on the throne of grace. He's crowned with glory and honor. What a great salvation. What a great salvation that our God has won for us. And Jesus has received this glory. He's been crowned in honor because, verse 9 says, because of the death he suffered on the cross. See, he swallowed up death in victory. Swallowed up our death. He died so that we could live. He humbled himself to the point of death, and he is now glorified, crowned with glory and honor. And so the call, again, friends, is to draw near to Jesus, to look to Jesus. And when you are wavering, when you are drifting, look to Christ who is seated on the throne. And when you are overwhelmed, when you are discouraged and beat down by the disorder of the world and the dysfunction of the world and the disobedience of the world, and I'm talking about in your own heart, in your own home, in our nation, and across the globe, do you know what you do? You look to Jesus crowned in glory because him we do see. We do see Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see him in our hearts and we see him at work in our lives. And so remember the victory that he has won. Remember that he reigns in power, seated on the throne. And so I'm calling the worship team back up because we're going to close and we're going to worship and we're going to say, God, give us eyes to see you. To see you seated on the throne. Not to be distracted and discouraged by what is going on in our world. Not to be drifted and pulled away, but to focus our eyes and our heart on the Lord Jesus. To focus our lives on him. This watch didn't do any good, I realize. But as the, as the worship team comes back up, I want to ask all of those elders and deacons that were up here before and our wives to come up, and they're going to gather on each side because some of you today, as we sing and as we close in prayer today, some of you need a brother or sister. You need a friend just to put their hand on their shoulder and pray with you. Elders and deacons, you want to go ahead and come on up and gather on the sides because the, these, these, these believers are here with you this morning to pray with you. And if you feel like you're drifting, if you feel like you're being swept away, let us, let us pray for you. And pray that distraction, that temptation, that maybe persecution would not pull you away from the Lord Jesus. And if you are having such a hard time focusing on Christ, if you're distracted by the world, if you're overwhelmed by things that would lead you to despair, come up and let us pray. And we'll pray and say, God, help them to focus on the Lord Jesus, to see him exalted in victory. Will you stand with me? God, we pray that you would lash us to Christ, that you would tie us tightly to him, that we would not wander or drift, that we would not be discouraged, that we would see Christ and pay attention. Even as we worship, even as we sing this song, bind our hearts to you, focus our eyes on you. God, in humility, enable us to come forward for prayer, to stand with brothers and sisters, to receive grace in time of need. We come now to your throne in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Come up in prayer as the Lord leads.